Uh, it's good to be with you guys. Welcome. Um, we are going to be continuing in our Ephesians study this morning, uh, which I have been enjoying. I have to say and confess that the study has been very challenging. Um, Paul writes in such a way that, that at times is, is very difficult. It's uh, difficult to discern and understand what he's saying. And I think it was uh, the Apostle Peter who even said something of that nature, said Paul writes some things that are kind of tough. And, uh, and, and, and Peter, if Peter said that, and he was an apostle, <laughs> uh, you can imagine how difficult it is for a shimp like me. So, um, but this text that we're going to be looking at this morning is really, really awesome. Uh, last Sunday, we, we talked about what it means and, and, and we didn't exhaust the subject. We talked about it in some detail, but we didn't exhaust the subject. But we talked about what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling as believers. Um, from verses 1 through 6, we were encouraged really to do four things. If you recall, if you were with us, to walk in all humility, to walk in gentleness, to walk in patience, which means to bear with one another in love. Uh, which I can testify to you is a very challenging thing to do at times, uh, and, uh, but it's definitely required. And then the last thing was to walk in, I would say, doctrinal agreement, like there's core doctrines to the Christian faith, and you know, if believers believe and affirm and defend those things, and they're humble, and they're gentle and patient in these things, if they exhibit those four things, then they can experience tremendous fellowship and unity in the body of Christ. And that's sort of the whole goal, right? But if you have a bunch of people or some people that are humble and some that are prideful and some that are gentle and some that aren't and all that in the same body, it's going to be really, really hard to experience the bond of peace and unity in the body. And so uh, these are the things that, these are our targets. We aim for being gentle and patient and these sorts of things. Ultimately, we aim for Christ because he embodied all of those things so perfectly. And so that's where we were last week. But the, the overarching goal of like chapter 4 verses 1 to 16 is, is really unity in the body. And so where we're going today still has to do with that subject. It, you know, the things that we're going to talk about, if, if they're exercised and lived out, they will promote oneness and unity and the bond of peace in the body of Christ. So we're still kind of on that thread. I want you to know that. Um, I will say that my method this morning will be a little more practical because, as I said last week, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians are a little more practical. Dan and I were talking about it earlier. I will say that talking about the Word of God in a practical way and giving practical application isn't in my wheelhouse of skill all that well. I like doctrine, and I like to talk about that stuff till the cows come home. But when it comes to taking the doctrine and, and saying, okay, this is what it is, and this is how we live it, that's a challenge for me. Is anyone else challenged with that? You know, and, and then there's, right, Dan, we were talking about, there's the flip side of that where it's all application and there's no doctrine. And so it's like, yeah, I want to be the balanced kind of minister, you know. But anyways, I've been working on this. I'm coming at this next set of verses more practical. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do a little bit of a Q&A with them. So I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll say a question and then I'll answer it with the text. And, and for me, every week the whole struggle is... is trying to figure out how to divide this text rightly and to present it in a way that not so much as that I'm comfortable with, but in a way that I can present it. And so this is the method that I came up with, was to kind of do a Q&A. And so don't let that trigger in your mind, well, this is going to be really shallow and all that. That's, that's not where we're going, but it's going to be more practical. A Q&A, I'll ask a question and answer it with the text. And um, yeah, and we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. So are you there right now? Okay, perfect. Let's, uh, let's pray one more time, and, uh, and then we'll get to work, okay? Father, um, we just call out to you now and ask for Holy Spirit focus. And uh, you know, every one of us in this room is, in some sense, preoccupied with something, some kind of life issue or distraction. I mean, we're all impacted by the world and life and the busyness. And, and I pray against that right now, that you would send the Holy Spirit in 
in such a way that He captivates and captures our attention and that we would be focused and that we would be trained and taught during this time, and that we would um, desire to obey. As new creations, we should actually desire to obey and live these things out. And so we pray for that, and we pray that you would be glorified during this time of, of teaching, Lord. And, and you're not going to be glorified just through the presentation or the exposition, but through the attentiveness of these folks of your children. And so I pray that we would, you know, that I would preach well for you and for your namesake and for your glory and that they would listen well for your namesake and for your glory. And so be with us now and may we enjoy this time of fellowship with one another, but most importantly with you, our Abba Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First question. Are you ready for the first question? All right. First question. Um, And I might want to first, before I even say that question, talk about what this section is. Again, it has to do with unity, but really it has to do with the gifts that Christ has given to his church. I, I, it might even, that might even be your little subtitle there uh, in your text. I don't know how it's worded in yours, but this whole section that we're looking at has to do with the gifts that Christ has given to his church. And again, the overarching theme there is unity. He's given gifts for the sake of people utilizing them in unity. So the first question would, would obviously be, who uh, did Christ give gifts to? Who did he give gifts to? And the answer, and I'll answer it and then read the text, the answer is that Christ has given gifts to every believer. Okay? He has given gifts to every believer. And we see that in verses 7 through 10. And we'll come back through this passage, but I'm just going to read it and we'll kind of talk it down a little bit. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... And he's referring to the Old Testament. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then you see this parenthetical statement in verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and so that's our first chunk that we're looking at. And, and it really does have to do with who Christ gave gifts to. You know, he's gifted the church. He's gifted every member with a particular gift or multiple gifts for a particular purpose. And we won't get to the purpose till next week. But that's what this has to do with. And, and the answer to the question is, as I said, he has given gifts to every believer. We see it right there. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men up at the bottom, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so Christ gave gifts. He gave these gifts to every believer. Now let's kind of break down that little passage. Grace in verse 7, it, it has to do with, it's a little different than the typical, I mean, I know it's pronounced or it's charis in Greek, and that's typically how grace, that's the word for grace in Greek, but here it has a little bit of a different angle on it than the typical, right? Grace in this particular verse has to do with being equipped, not being saved. Okay, typically when we think of grace, we think of salvation, right? We think of you're saved by grace through faith. We think of Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And, and that's not what he's saying here. He's not talking about salvation, but grace was given to each one of us. He's not talking about saving grace. This is an equipping and empowering grace is what he's talking about here. The idea is that Christ has not only saved us by grace, but that he has equipped us with a gift through grace and that he empowers this gift through grace. So it's like he, you know, he saves us by grace, he gives us a gift uh, by grace, and it's grace itself that actually empowers the gift. It's not empowered by human power or human ability or human talent, it's actually empowered by grace. This is what he's saying. Christ gives the gift... uh, Christ gives the gift, and it it says that he measures out. So he gives the gift, and then he measures out. He measures out what? The amount of grace that it will take to empower the gift, the duration of your life. This is what he's going for here. It's really interesting. 
So the idea is that he saves us by grace, he gifts us by grace, grace empowers the gift, and, and then he measures out, he measured out in his sovereign plan, he measured out how much grace we would need uh, to empower the gift the whole duration of our earthly life. Really interesting that he says this here, right? That's what he's saying. Now, I thought of a good parallel here, uh, which would be a gas tank in a car, right? Uh, all of our cars have a gas tank, unless, of course, you're Sean Graham and you drive a Prius. I suppose it has some kind of gas tank, right? It's probably like two gallons. Uh, it's an electric car, really. But um, for the most part, every car has a gas tank, right? And, 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 I, and I was thinking of this text, and I thought, okay, gas tank. What does a gas tank do? It holds the fuel that empowers your engine, that drives your engine. And every gas tank holds a certain amount of fuel, right? You have 15-gallon tanks, you have 20-gallon tanks, you have 30-gallon tanks, not big rigs, what, you have 200 gallons on each side, right? Now, it's a great parallel to what Paul is presenting here to the Ephesians. Uh, it, it's, it's similar to Christ's enabling grace uh, his enabling grace is the gasoline in the tank, if you will. And he's measured out the tank. The tank is large enough in capacity to hold all the grace we will need to propel the gift. It's really awesome. So that's what he's saying here, right? And, and, and what I like about the grace of God and even the empowering grace of God in this context is that it's, it's like fuel in a tank, driving our car, driving our gift, but the beauty of it is, is that it doesn't run out, right? Because I don't know about you, I'm one of those people that pretty much drives on E. Are you one of those people too? I mean, we've been getting our gas at Costco, so, you know, it's a little cheaper and, and uh, you know, you're not going to do $5 of gas at that place because it's, it's not worth your time, but I, I guess we're, we've changed, but I used to be one of those people that, you know, all, the little orange light was always on everywhere I drove, and my wife's like, that's not supposed to be on, you know, um, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know about you, I don't have a, a gas-guzzling car, but I put gas in it probably every week or every two weeks, and, but it always runs out, and remember when it was 4 or $5 a gallon? I mean, that was just ridiculous. The idea here is that this grace fuel for our gift, it just never runs out. You, you can't deplete. I, I put it this way. It's been measured out. And, and, and in that it's been measured out, Christ has completely considered every aspect of our life, the ups and downs, the times where we need more grace and less grace, and all of these factors. He's taken all of these factors because he has the foreknowledge, he can see all things, he knows all things, and he has, uh, in light of all of those things and all of those variables and uses, he has measured out exactly what we need, and it cannot be depleted. This is incredible what he's done here. I think it has to do with what we talked about a few weeks ago, and that's the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold means intricate. God's wisdom is intricate. He's figured out all of these things, things that we can't even figure out. So we have a gift, and it's been given by grace, and grace is what empowers the gift, and grace has been measured out in such a way that it will supply the gift to accomplish the purposes of the gift the whole duration of our life. And that's essentially what he's saying here. Very interesting. I like what uh, MacArthur wrote about this little section. He said, and each believer's gift is unique. Each believer's gift is unique with certain distinct capabilities, parameters, and purposes. Christians are not assembly line productions with every unit being exactly like the other unit. Consequently, no Christian can replace another in God's plan. He has his own individualized plan for each of us and has individually gifted us accordingly. We are not interchangeable parts in Christ's body, but individually members one of another, he says in uh, Romans 12.5. And so we have this gift. It's been given by grace. It's empowered by grace. That's measured out. The gift, the gas for the gift will never get 
you know, run out. It'll never get tapped out. And every, these gifts are all unique and individualized for each of us. I think that's amazing. That you, you know, if you're a believer in Christ, you have a particular gift that he's given by grace. He empowers it by grace. And, 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 and it might have the same title, maybe, as other people's gifts, right? Because there are spiritual gifts we see in the Scripture, and they're described, and they're a handful of these things. But your gift is still unique in comparison to others. The gift is utilized through you, and you're not the same as every other person. Therefore, the gift turns out a little differently and looks a little differently. It's all individualized. It's all customized. God is a God who customizes things, tailors things for his people to achieve his purposes for them. So I think that's really cool. In verse 8, Paul quoted Psalm 68, verse 18. Okay, you see it there. Psalm 68 is, and, and this is where this is going to give this meaning. You have to know the context. You have to know what Psalm 68 is about. It, it literally is something that Paul quoted. Let me reread it again real quick. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Do you see there in your Bible how that part is in quotes? That is Paul quoting uh, Psalm 68, 18. Now, Psalm 68 is a victory hymn, Okay? It's a victory hymn. It's a hymn. It's a song about victory. And it was composed by King David. And for the purpose, ultimately, of celebrating God's conquest of the Jebusite city and the triumphant ascent of God, which was represented by the Ark of the Covenant, up Mount Zion. So that's what that psalm has to do with. And then here we see Paul talking about how Christ has given every believer gift, and then he goes to this psalm, and it's a victory psalm. It's really awesome. And you need to know what would happen with a king and his kingdom after a victory, right? After a, and here's, what, here's the meaning of Psalm 68. After a king won uh, such a victory, like if he conquered some other group of people or some other kingdom or some other place, um, after the victory, he would bring home to his kingdom, to his place, to his dwelling place. He would bring home all the spoils. You see, when a king in those days went into a kingdom and conquered it, they didn't just beat it down and, and kill the enemy and all that. They would take all of the animals and the gold and everything that was of value, they would take all of those things out of that kingdom and make them their own. Unless, of course, God commanded that they don't do that and they destroy everything, and that had happened a few times. But here we get the idea of a king conquering another nation and him bringing all of the spoils. In victory, brings all of the spoils, all of the booty, if you will, all of the bounty, brings it all. And he also brought with him the enemy prisoners. Any person, any soldier from the other side that wasn't killed in the battle, they would take all of the, the goodies and they would take all of the soldiers and they would bring them all to, he would bring them all to his own kingdom and then he would parade them before his people. It was a huge processional with the king out front and then you've got, you know, all of these artifacts and art and gold and money and all of the things from this other kingdom. And then behind that, you would have all of these very downtrodden and beaten sort of emotionally, physically soldiers behind them that were shackled, and those were the enemy soldiers. And so, you know, you would just glorify yourself by bringing all of this into your own kingdom and displaying it all to your own people. Now, of course, people would be throwing flowers and partying and celebrating and clapping and hollering, and there'd be music. It was a really, really big kind of thing that they did. An Israelite king would lead his processional or procession through the holy city of Jerusalem and up Mount Zion. Now, another feature of the victory parade would be the display of the king's old sol his own soldiers who had been freed after being held by the enemy because this happened a lot of times you know a king would not conquer a kingdom in one day there would be a lot of fighting and some of his soldiers would be killed and taken hostage or prisoner you know and then when he finally wins the battle he would regain his own soldiers those soldiers were called what 
captives. That's what it says in the text, captives. And so he would not only display all of the booty that he took from that kingdom and the enemy soldiers that he was probably going to execute later on, but he would also display his own soldiers who had been taken captive and freed. That is what has happened or is represented in Psalm 68. This is something that David himself as a king experienced. He was very likely the king who went into the city, fought for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or for a couple of years, who knows, won some of the battle, lost some of the battle, had some of his own soldiers captive and held. Finally, the Lord grants him the victory. He crushes the enemy, takes the booty, takes the enemies, releases his captive, his captive soldiers. He comes back to Jerusalem and they throw down and have a big party. It's very likely him that he's talking about. But that is Psalm 68. Now why would Paul use or put this psalm here? Why did he do it? It's interesting, right? Why, why, would, he, why, would, he, why would he go to this psalm? What relevance does it have? How does it pertain to Christ's giving gifts to his own people? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He used Psalm 68 as an analogy to describe the person and work of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Okay, here, here's what he meant. Christ, the King, descended from heaven to defeat Satan, to defeat sin, to defeat death and hell, those are the enemies, and to set what? The captives free? To set the captives free? And what did Christ do? After he won this decisive battle against Satan, the demons, hell, sin, and death, after he won this decisive battle and set the captives free, what has he done? And, and maybe we should say, how has he won this battle through his life, death, burial, and resurrection? What does he do after he secures and wins the battle? He ascends, he returns to heaven as the victorious king, with, in a spiritual sense, his people, the captives whom he set free, right? And what does he do once he... And this, this all has to do with his ascension. He wins the battle down here on earth. He sets his people, his captives, those who are taken hostage by the devil, he sets them free. He brings them with him. He goes into, the, into Jerusalem, in a sense, into heaven. He parades them before the throne of God, in a sense. And then what does he do? He takes the booty and he distributes it to all of his people, those captives. This is what the text is. This is what it means by him giving gifts to men. The men are those whom were once captives. And he gives them the booty, in a sense. Now, he's not giving us things that he's taken away from Satan. He gives us gifts, but the, there's a, an amazing analogy there. Jesus is the king who entered into earth, fought a battle, won the battle through his life, death, burial, resurrection, set the captives free, all of his people, ascends back into heaven, into that place of glory, his kingdom. And I get it, the world, you know, he's building a kingdom and the world has to do with that and all that, but he essentially enters back into his kingdom he has the captives with him in some spiritual sense and there he distributes the war prizes which are in the truer sense not things that he's taken from satan or things from some other kingdom they're not worldly things they are spiritual gifts that's the parallel pretty awesome now and another thing too to consider is that you know, why, did, why did Paul point to this text? Obviously, he wanted to point to Christ, who is the ultimate victor and who is the one who took the spoils and distributes them to his own people. That's primary, but I think what he wanted to do here was that he wanted to show the Ephesians that Christ had the right to give gifts, that Christ is the rightful king who secured the battle, won the battle, and obtained the gifts, and that Christ is the one who has the authority and right to distribute the gifts. 
you know, you're talking to the Ephesians and they're thinking, okay, we've given gifts. What right does Christ have to give to those? How has he secured those things for us? He points to Psalm 68. They're thinking, okay, now we get it. He won the battle. He obtained the right. He secured the gifts. He's given them to us. That's, what's the, that's the thinking here. I like what MacArthur wrote about this again. He said, Paul's point in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 is to explain that Jesus is paying the infinite price of coming to earth and suffering death on our behalf qualified him to be ascended, and in some translations, ascended in ours there is exalted, far above all the heavens, which is essentially the throne of God, in order that he might rightfully have the authority to give gifts to his saints. By that victory, right, over the devil, he gained the right to rule his church and to give gifts to his church that he might, what does it say in the text, fill all things. That's the meaning. So again, Christ has secured the battle, obtained the gifts, set us free. He goes back into his kingdom. He left his glorious kingdom. He goes back into it as the victor with his captives in a spiritual sense and at the ascension, and, and it's really after the ascension that he distributes these spiritual gifts, the things that he's obtained for us. It's after the ascension and after the victory prayed that he distributes the gifts to us. And I think it's really interesting. There's a passage in Peter that talks about how Jesus descended down into the lower, lower depths. And we're thinking of, when we read that text, we're thinking of Sheol, which could be another name for hell. And there it's that he proclaimed his victory over all of these demons uh, and or all of these uh, people who were imprisoned down there and still are. And it's like, hey, I, I have the keys. I won the victory. You have that parading element happening. And, and I think this might have happened, if I'm not wrong, maybe during his time in the tomb is when he went down into the depths of Sheol and proclaimed this victory. And so there we even see a glimpse of this processional and this victorious king and these sorts of things. But that's really the meaning of this. He's given us gifts. He won the victory. He won the right to give them, and he's given them, and it's awesome. And he's given them to every believer, every believer. Not one believer has been left out or ever will be left out of these gifts. Every one of them gets or shares in his victory, and the gifts that he obtained for us. Everyone gets a gift. Every believer gets a gift. Uh, Second question, followed by second answer. What are Christ's gifts to his church? What has he secured? What What did he win, and what has he distributed to each believer? Okay, what we see in our text in verse 11 is that Christ has given gifts, the, the gifts that Christ has given to His church are leaders. Or we might say spiritual leaders. We see that in verse 11, right? It's like Paul says, all right, he won the victory, he did this. He is the, 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 the true, uh, he is the meaning of Psalm 68. He's the victor, he's given the gifts. And now he's saying, and here's what some of them are. And he points to people. Because when I think of a gift, I don't think of a person. I think of clothes or, you know, at Christmas time from grandma, horrible sleepwear. Right? I I think of a gift. I think of something that someone would give me. But and and he goes right to people here, and it's it's really interesting. Look, look at it. Verse eleven, and he gave, right? He gave gifts, and he gave the apostles. The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave spiritual overseers, spiritual leaders to the church. Uh, They're gifts to the church. They're gifts to the bride of Christ, to the people of God. It's really interesting. Apostles here in this text is a reference to Jesus' 12, right? which would include Matthias, who later replaced Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, and also uh, Paul, who was uniquely set apart as the apostle to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So the, the total number of apostles that Paul has in mind here, right there in verse 11, it says the apostles. Who's he thinking of? He's thinking of 13 guys. 
He's thinking of all the apostles who were with Jesus as disciples. He's thinking of Matthias, the replacement. He's thinking of himself. That's who he has in mind here. The total number of apostles is 13. And I, and I, and I want you to understand something. There's never been more than that. That's it. There's never been more. There aren't apostles today. There's only been that many. The original guys who were with Jesus, less Iscariot. Matthias, who toured with Jesus and knew Jesus well and was, in a way, appointed by Jesus to the office. And then Paul. That's it. There's never been more than that group. The office of apostle, it ended when the New Testament was completed. Because ultimately, the apostles were responsible for recording it. That was their primary task, was to receive revelation and to record it. The last apostle was the apostle John. He was it. Now, you might be thinking, but, um, you know, this church over here or, or this guy on television or this guy in this YouTube, he bears the title apostle. So, who's right? Is Pastor Phil right or is the apostle... Fred Thompson, that's a terrible example because he's an actor who just died um, and a politician, but is it this guy? Is this guy right because he bears the title or is it, or is it Pastor Phil who's right? The title still seems to be in, in circulation. It's still out there. Well, uh, those who take the title upon themselves and who believe that the apostles are still around don't understand what the Bible clearly teaches. They don't understand that there's never been more than the 13. They don't understand that the, that the office has ended, that the office of apostle was unique and specific to a particular era and timeline. And for a specific, as I said, purpose. And so those who think that apostles are still around or who call themselves apostles are ultimately ignorant of the clear teachings of Scripture. And they're also ignorant of church history. Because if you study church history, you'll see that that title wasn't used. It might have been by rogue groups, but it wasn't by the true church. Now, the qualifications for an apostle were quite specific. They had to know Christ face-to-face. They had to meet Him face-to-face, not just by faith. Uh, they had to have been selected by Christ for the position of apostle. Okay? You think of that today, you've got this guy, you know, on the other side of the country who claims to be an apostle. Has he met Christ face to face? (laughs) Was he chosen by Christ specifically for the position? You remember what Christ told the disciples? You didn't pick me, I picked you. They became apostles. They also had to be a witness to the resurrected Christ. And maybe that's obviously how Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road. On the Damascus Road, Christ... And Paul met face-to-face, in a sense, and Paul was appointed to apostleship. That's how he's qualified. And all of the other disciples who became apostles knew Christ face-to-face. They all saw Christ resurrected. They all interacted with him, and they were all appointed, in some sense, to apostleship. So there's your qualifier right there. If anyone claims to be an apostle in this day and age, then you have to say you've met Christ face-to-face, you've seen him in a physical sense resurrected, and he told you you're an apostle, and they'll say, well, no, that's not exactly... Okay, we're done. End of conversation. Now, what does apostle basically mean? It's apostolos in Greek, and it basically means messenger. That's what it means. Messenger. Now, the apostles had three primary tasks. As I said, they were... Uh, to receive and record divine revelation from God, the New Testament, through the Holy Spirit. They were to proclaim this divine revelation in Jerusalem and beyond, right? Therefore, laying the foundation of the church. They were to authenticate this divine revelation that they were receiving through signs and wonders. That's miracles and healings and all of those things. That's primarily what an apostle was to do. Receive the word, record the word, proclaim the word in certain areas, in in all areas, if you will, because they were told not to just stay in Jerusalem. They were to go out. And then they were to authenticate the word. Like when they proclaimed Scripture, when when they received it and proclaimed Scripture directly from the Holy Spirit, they were to show that they were telling the truth through working a miracle. 
okay, this is how we'll show them that what we're saying, we mean business. And then some crippled person or something would be healed and then people would go, I think we should probably take what they're saying seriously because nobody can do that. Anyone can talk, but not everyone can do that. And so that was their primary task. Now in the New Testament, the term apostle was also applied in a general way to Barnabas and a few other outstanding leaders who engaged in a variety of apostle-like activities or duties. But Paul did not have, and they weren't like true apostles in the biblical sense, but they bore the title because maybe Barnabas was a messenger. And so it has that kind of meaning there. Not that he was a true apostle appointed by Christ face to face, all that, but that he was a messenger. But that's not at all who Paul has in mind here in this text. He's thinking of himself and the others. The prophets... Okay, this is the second gift that Christ gave. The first is the apostles, these men who served in this particular role, recorded Scripture, proclaimed Scripture, authenticated it. And then he says the prophets, they are also a gift to the church from Christ. They were like the apostles in that some of them received divine revelation. You need to think of some of those biblical authors, James, Luke, and Jude, right? They wrote Scripture. They were prophets. If you received a message from the Holy Spirit and recorded it and it had any kind of prophecy to it, and all of Scripture really does in a sense, then you were considered to be a prophet, right? So they were like the apostles in that some of them recorded Scripture. Now, the apostles, though, if you study again, probably the book of Acts is the best place to look. You will notice that they were pretty much on the move, right? Apostle is apostolos. It means messenger. Um, look at the life of Paul. Uh, I think the most that he ever stayed at any one place was probably Ephesus for three years. You know, and, and, But in other regions, he went in for days. And so when you look at the life and ministry of Paul, you get the idea that he was always on the move. And, and, and that's what it means to be an apostle as well. They were always on the move. But it's a little different with a prophet. A prophet's like an apostle in that some of them receive divine revelation, but they're unlike an apostle in that it's like every church had a prophet. And a prophet would stick to one church. I suppose some of them could be on the move, but for the most part, they would, you know, God would uh, call out or gift a particular church with a prophet, and he would stay in a particular church so they weren't mobile like the apostles now as i said the apostles office ceased at the end of the complete when the new testament was completed that position ended it came to an end and like the apostles the office of the prophet also ceased done it ended. Just as the Old Testament prophets disappeared when the Old Testament was completed, right? Malachi, last book in the Bible. These prophets, it's like once, once they fulfilled their office, they were done and they disappeared off the scene. How much time is there between the Testaments? Old and new. 400 years? There, no prophet, no one from the Old Testament era says a thing on behalf of God for 400 years. They fell off the scene. And in a similar way, these prophets that recorded Scripture and did their duty in office and served the church during the apostolic era, they disappeared as well. And they've been gone ever since. Gone. They went away. And you could be thinking, well, but, you know, there's still people who prophesy in a way. Well, that could be true and false. But this particular office that Paul is speaking about, gone. Just like apostle, gone. Okay? Now, the next three groups are still around today, though. They're still in office, still fulfilling their duty. They're active gifts to the church from Christ, if you will. First one we see is the evangelists. An evangelist is one who specializes in proclaiming the gospel to who? Unreached areas, unreached people, unsaved people, right? That's what an evangelist does. An evangelist focuses on preaching the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel, to people who have never received the gospel. 
to unsaved people. When we think of an evangelist, we can think of Philip in the book of Acts. He went to Samaria, he went to Zotos, he went to Caesarea. Why? To preach the gospel. He preached to Samaritans and, and all these other people. These were unreached people groups in that area. They had not been reached with the gospel. Some had during the ministry of Christ, but it was so minuscule. But when he goes into these areas, he's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have never even heard it, don't have any concept of what it is. Now, Philip demonstrates that the evangelist is not a man with ten suits and ten sermons. You know, who kind of goes around and runs a road show. Right? We've, we've all seen the TV movies. We've, we're familiar with what I'm talking about here. I think most of us are. We get the idea that an evangelist is a guy who has ten suits and ten really well-written, crafted sermons, and he tours around in all these places, and he preaches the gospel. Maybe he puts up a tent. Uh, that's our concept of an evangelist, and that's not the biblical concept of an evangelist. And Philip proves that to us. New Testament evangelists were missionaries and church planters, similar to the apostles, but without the title. Paul's apprentice, Timothy, was an evangelist. Paul exhorted him, do the work of an evangelist. It's who you are. Do that work, Paul tells him. And Timothy didn't go around with a tent touring with ten suits and ten sermons and have a crusade. He pretty much spent most of his time doing evangelistic sort of ministry in Ephesus. He was like the pastor at the church of Ephesus. That's where he stayed. So Timothy's example shows us that an evangelist can actually stay in one place. He doesn't have to tour around and go around and reach. He can continue to reach unreached people in one particular area. So an evangelist isn't one who just goes out and tours. He's also one who stays at a church. And I'll tell you, I think every church should have a pastor who has to do with evangelism because every church is to be about evangelism. If you have a pastor who, who is specifically called by God and appointed by God to do that, and he proclaims the Word of God in such a way that impacts or that focuses on lost people, you need to have that in your church because a church should be about outreach. It's a good thing. We see it in the Scriptures. Ephesus had many capable elders. They all met with Paul before Paul got arrested in Jerusalem and all that. There were a bunch of elders there that could preach the Word and do all these things, but, you know, there was also an evangelistic kind of component to that church and that leadership in Timothy and probably others. Churches should consider how they're going to deal with evangelism and, and look for a person who is gifted and anointed with that particular gift and put him in a position where he can train the congregates how to reach lost people. Because I don't care what community you're in, there's always lost people in that community. doesn't matter where you're at. The evangelists, they toured and they stuck to one church. They did whatever God called them to do. We have the shepherds and teachers. Shepherds, pastors, and elders, and even bishops are the same office in the New Testament. The same Greek word is used to describe all four of those titles. So they're essentially the same thing. Shepherds, pastors, elders, bishop is not something we use very often. And when we think of a bishop, we think of one who oversees many congregations. But that's not necessarily what the New Testament teaches about a bishop. A bishop is technically a pastor or a shepherd or an elder. So we have shepherds and teachers. They all, you know, shepherds, pastors, elders all mean the same thing. What does your translation say? Does it say pastors and teachers? It could. Mine says shepherd. Interchangeable word here, same title. Now, it is likely that Paul was referring to one particular group of leaders here rather than two. I know it says the shepherds and teachers, but you need to understand that word and. You need to understand that word and right there. It is chi in Greek. And 99, I don't know if it's 99, but a very high percentage of the time what and actually means or chi means is it means that is or in particular. So verse 11 could read the shepherds, that is, teachers. It's probably what it means. 
So Paul is likely not referring to two different offices or people. He's saying the shepherds who teach, the pastor who preaches, the pastor, the elder who teaches the Word of God, who teaches doctrine, whatever it is. That's very likely what he's saying here. I don't think it can be proven exactly because Kai can have a couple of meanings, but I think that's what Paul is after. I don't think he's talking about two different people. I believe he was talking about the shepherd who teaches, the pastor who teaches, the shepherd, pastor who teaches God's Word, who preaches God's Word to a congregation. And that really is the primary responsibility of a shepherd, pastor, elder. It's to study the Word of God and proclaim the Word of God to a congregation, to a group of people. That's really the primary responsibility. And the sad thing in the church today is that pastors do a million things. They don't, that's, you know, that's like one thing that they do, and it's usually minimized to the least denominator. It's just terrible. I get six hours to study on my sermon and, and then to preach the Word, and, but I, you know, I, got, I got to spend another 55 hours managing the cruise ship. That's not what pastors are called to do. And thank God, because if I was running a cruise ship, it would go down next to the Titanic. Because I am pathetic at, at not very good at administrative things. So it's the, it's the shepherd who teaches is what he has in mind here. And um, what does a shepherd do? I mean, just think of a shepherd right now. A shepherd is one who cares for a flock of sheep, Right? He nourishes the sheep, he protects the sheep, he leads the sheep. You know, the shepherd pastor, the gift, a, 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 the gift of a shepherd pastor given to the church through Christ, what is he called to do? The same thing as a shepherd. As an under-shepherd for the Lord Jesus Christ, he is supposed to nourish the Lord's people with the Word of God. He is supposed to protect the Lord's people from false teachers and, and false teaching, Right? And he is to point the Lord's people to the chief shepherd, the Lord himself, and towards godly living, towards heaven. What is a shepherd supposed to do? He's supposed to equip his sheep for heaven, to get them ready and prepared for that, because that's eternity. That's what he's to do. The apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and, and shepherds who teach are gracious gifts from Christ to His church. What other gifts has Christ given to His church? Are there other gifts that He's given, we might say? Right? He's given these men, these leaders. Has He given other gifts? Well, of course He has. He's given us gifts. We saw that in the very first line that we looked at. Gifts at the end of verse 8 has to do with these men who were given to the church as gifts, but it also has to do with spiritual gifts. The gifts that he has distributed amongst us and given to each of us. And Paul listed eight of them in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. We read it earlier, and I'm going to fly through them because I want you to know that the point in 1 Corinthians and in our text isn't to take every gift and to define every gift in such detail so we're all clear on the matter. Paul's point is to show diversity. Have you ever looked at the spiritual gifts in the New Testament? Have you ever taken a look at them? They're only listed in a couple of places. And, and they're never listed in, 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 in an ultimate comprehensive way. And you know what else you notice about the spiritual gifts in the New Testament? And they're only in like Romans, Romans 12, you see a few of them, or in Romans, I think actually Romans 8, you see a few of them. No, Romans 8, I think you see a few of them. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, which we had read earlier, 12, 8. 8 through 10, we read that earlier, we saw some there. I mean, they're just, they're kind of sporadic, and they're never comprehensive. And guess what Paul never does with them? He never defines them. He never tells us. He says what they are, but he never tells us what they do or what their function is. And he also never tells us that, okay, leaders of the church who are gifts to the church, you need to spend a whole lot of time trying to help your people figure out what their gift is. He never does that. He doesn't tell us what they are. He tells us what they are, but he doesn't define them and give us the, exact, the precision of what they do. He doesn't tell us their function in a sense. And, he, and, he, and, and, and there's no spiritual gift test in Scripture. And I'm really astonished by how churches spend a lot of time trying to help the people of God figure out. You'd almost think 
that when Paul wrote these things, there was an expectation there that the true believer would actually know what his gift is without having to be told. Because he doesn't give any information on it. Why did he leave all the details out? Because as a believer, a new creation who has the Holy Spirit, you ought to be able to figure it out without having a whole lot of instruction or to go through a spiritual gift test. There's just none of that in Scripture, and we spend all our time trying to figure out what's my gift or what's your gift. Here's what your gift is. You know what? You'll notice the outcome almost on every spiritual gift test at every church is, you know what? It's really interesting. I know you're a 72-year-old man, and, but we believe you are spiritually gifted to serve in the nursery. Don't tell him that we have a tremendous need there, and that's actually where we need him to be. You see how the spiritual gift tests are influenced by the needs of the church. They're not influenced by what, how the Spirit has gifted people. Take this guy and put him... We have a need over here, and I suspect that you're gifted in such a way to do that task. It's ridiculous. It's not biblical. What are the gifts? 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. We're going to fly through them. It says again, you can turn back to it. We had it read earlier, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the gift or the interpretation of tongues. That's them. Now, there's more mentioned in other places, but that's most of them. And I think Paul's point here isn't that here's all the gifts. His point here is that they're all given by the same Spirit. So what? Unify. That's his point. It's not that, hey, his point is diversity. God, Christ has given a variety of gifts to be used for a variety of purposes, and they're all given by the same Christ and the same Spirit, so unify, right? And then we take this text and we turn it into a spiritual gift test. And that's not his purpose. Let's, let's identify and define each of them. The spiritual gift of wisdom, verse 8. The spiritual gift of wisdom has to do with a believer's ability to know the will of God and apply it obediently. Notice how Paul called it the utterance of wisdom. Utterance is logos in Greek, which means word. Okay, so the idea here is that the spiritual gift of wisdom also has to do with communicating God's will to others. That's what it has to do with. The person who has the spiritual gift of wisdom has the ability to skillfully create practical applications of the truth and communicate them to others. That's what the gift means. Paul doesn't even tell us that. You know how much research I had to do to figure this out? He just says there's the, there's the gift of the utterance of wisdom. That's all he says. Well, I went and did some research on it so we'd know what it means. That's what it means. If you have the spiritual gift of wisdom, you have the ability to understand the will of God in a particular scenario and to, in your mind and in your heart, draw out a logical, practical conclusion and then communicate that to someone. Here's the will of God in this scenario and here's what you need to do about it. That's the spiritual gift of wisdom. And I can tell you that preachers better have it. Because it's going to be really hard to deal with the Scripture, which is the will of God, right? If you don't have that gift in your preaching. And I can tell you, you can pinpoint these guys that don't have that gift. Joel Osteen's a perfect example. He never even teaches the Word of God. He gets up and talks about a lot of great things and make you feel good. And, ooh, this is wonderful. I feel great about myself because I'm special. I'm unique. And God has got all this stuff waiting for me. I've just got to do the right thing. And he never actually goes to Scripture. And when he does, he only uses it out of context for his own purpose. He does not have the spiritual gift of wisdom. The question is, do you have the spiritual gift of wisdom? Because it is a gift that Christ has secured and given to his people. And there are people in this room who have it. There is the spiritual gift of knowledge, verse 8. The spiritual gift of knowledge logically precedes, comes before the spiritual gift of wisdom because knowledge usually comes before wisdom, right? Wisdom basically means to rightfully use knowledge. I don't know why Paul switched the order here, but it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter. The spiritual gift of knowledge has to do with a believer's ability to perceive and understand the truths of God's Word. And Paul used the same phrase, 
utterance, logos, again, which means communication. Okay? Every believer, and think about this in a general sense, every believer has been gifted with the ability to read and comprehend, to understand the Scripture, God's Word, to a degree, right? Every believer has the spiritual gift of knowledge in a way, but it's a little more complex than that. Some believers appear to be anointed with an ability to see and comprehend God's Word in a way that other believers cannot. They open the Scripture and they can see things in the Scripture that others just fly over because they don't see it. And I think that in a general sense, everyone, every believer has been given the ability of knowledge, in a sense, to understand God's Word to a degree. But I think the spiritual gift of knowledge has to do with something deeper and beyond that. It's a specific gift that has to do with having the eyes to see what others in the church cannot see. And, then you, and, and I think that the person who has the spiritual gift of knowledge will also have the spiritual gift of wisdom because his job is to take what he can see, what others can't see, to put it into a practical application and to communicate it to the believers, to the church. Uh, the spiritual gift of knowledge is absolutely foundational for those who preach and teach and, and give counsel, just as the spiritual gift of wisdom is. Have I described you? Do you have the spiritual gift of knowledge? Number three, the spiritual gift of faith. This is another gift that Christ has given to his people, to certain people. Verse nine, now this is an interesting one. Okay, you, you need to know right off the bat that the spiritual gift of faith is not saving faith and it's not even daily faith or daily living. It doesn't have to do with those two things. Christ has given repentance, the Holy Spirit, repentance, grace, mercy, and faith to every believer. Not what Paul is talking about here when we're talking about the spiritual gift of faith. The spiritual gift of faith has to do with an intensive ability to trust God in difficult and demanding ways. That's what it is. It is the ability to trust God in the face of overwhelming obstacles and human impossibilities. Everyone in this room has met someone who has that kind of faith. And you say, I don't understand how. Look at their attitude in the midst of this, this destruction. They very likely have the spiritual gift of faith. They tend to have a stronger, more robust, more, it seems like, bulletproof kind of faith than the average believer. And most believers get destroyed during the midst of difficult seasons. And, and, and once in a while, you've got like 10 of them who are all moaning and crying, I'm one of the babies, who's crying, I don't think I have this gift, who's crying and God rescue me and all that. And then you see this one guy who's there going, it's in control, he's got it all taken care of. And you're like, shut up! That guy probably has the spiritual gift of faith. It's not even a greater faith than your faith. It's a particular gift that Christ gives. And I have to tell you, I am so thankful that Christ has anointed believers in the church with this gift because they are wonderful to be around, especially when the bottom falls out. They're that guy or gal in the church who remains pretty positive during the midst of things and who you can go to and say, man, stuff is just falling apart and all that. And they're like, well, let me encourage you and pray with you. And you need to know God is in control and, and he's got this thing. And let me tell you what I went through. And that's that person. I love those people in the church. They're such an encouragement. That's the spiritual gift of faith. The spiritual gift of faith is primarily expressed toward God if the person has it, this is what they do. They pray a lot. They appeal a lot to God. They demand from God. Maybe like that War Room movie that, uh, that some of you folks have seen, and you've got that. I haven't seen it yet, but I keep hearing about it. But you've got that woman who's kind of a main character in it who's like that prayer warrior. She doesn't have the spiritual gift of prayer. It doesn't exist. She has the spiritual gift of faith. She calls out to God and cries out to God in the midst of horrible situations, in the midst of failing marriages and all of these things, and people are drawn to her because she has this spiritual gift of faith. Have I described you? Do you have the spiritual gift of faith? How about the spiritual gift of healing? Verse 9. 
Christ, the 70 who were sent out by Christ, the apostles and some of the apostles' associates, such as Philip, were those who possessed the spiritual gift of healing. The spiritual gift of healing, like the other signs and wonder gifts, were temporary. They were given to the church for the purpose of authenticating the apostolic message as the Word of God. So what am I telling you? This spiritual gift of healing was given and it was temporary and it's gone. It's gone. And I, and I, I think probably one of the greatest proofs that I'll use for that is the Great Commission. What does it say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no thing in there that says, and heal them. That gift's gone. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't heal. What it means is that God does not give that spiritual gift to any person so that they can heal on his behalf or authenticate the New Testament, which wasn't completed in Paul's day. And that's a great question. Why is it then that Paul lists it here? He's talking about it in such a way that would lead people to believe that the gift is still in action. Well, guess what? It was in action when he wrote this. He wrote this during the apostolic era when the apostles were out functioning and healing and doing these ministries and authenticating the Word of God. That's when he wrote this. That's the context. But guess what? The gift is gone now. No single person has been anointed now with the gift of healing, and you say to yourself, but what about that guy at that really large church over on the other side of town? He claims to heal people and have healing power and the spiritual gift of healing, and they have healing services at their church. So who's right here? Are you right, Pastor Phil, or is he right? Well, if the spiritual gift of healing ceased with the other signs and wonder gifts, and it's not around today, then in the Scripture, I'm, I'm just telling you, it makes this lucidly clear if you do a careful analysis and study. If the Scripture's right about this subject and he's doing his thing, then who's right? Is he right? No, he's not. Now, that is not to say that God does not and cannot heal people in a church. What it is to say is that God does not appoint a person and gift them with the ability to do it. That part's gone. But I will tell you, and I am so thrilled to tell you, that God still heals. He just does it himself. He doesn't need people to go out and say, look, here's the scripture, and let me prove it's true, and then heal somebody. That's, that time is done. The New Testament is complete. The gift of healing and the other miraculous gifts were given to authenticate the word, and they were only given to specific people. They're gone. There's no need for them today. Well, yeah, we need people healed. Well, then you know what? The prayer of a righteous man is both powerful and effective. You want someone healed? Pray! Don't say, well, uh, Joe Blow over there has got the gift, so let's take him over there. That guy does not have the gift. It's gone. And I, I can't go any farther. I'm already, at the, I'm already tapped on time. So next week, we will deal with the spiritual gift of miracles. We'll deal with the spiritual gift of prophecy, which I think is really, really interesting. We'll deal with the spiritual gift of discernment. And then we'll get to one of my all-time favorites, the spiritual gift of tongues. It's not what it is. Okay? We're going to deal with that as well, and hopefully a few other things, but I just don't want to keep you here way long, and I think we've already taken in a lot. Let, let, me, let me close with this. We've only covered a handful of the gifts here, but the real point here is that Christ secured victory, has given us gifts, and, and I've, some of the gifts are people with special abilities, unique talents, if you will, and, and every believer has been given a gift. We, we've been given leaders in the church, which are a gift, but we've also all been given a gift ourselves, right? And I've described some of them, and maybe you, you, you recognize you know, the spiritual gift of wisdom or knowledge. Healing, forget it, it's gone. If you say you have that, we're going to have some counseling. Maybe you know that you have one of these gifts. 
that we've already described. And maybe it'll come next week when you hear them, you'll say, hey, I, I believe I'm gifted that way. And I, let me tell you, this is to start a, a even maybe to start a dialogue that we could start having conversations about these things. I'd love to talk with you offline on these things and maybe to help you pray through and to figure out where you're gifted. But I think Paul's big point here is that the gifts are given as gifts. They're, they're gifts and they're given and there is a specific purpose for them. And we're going to talk about that next week as well. And a little cheater, that part of the purpose is that we would serve one another and build up the body. The gifts aren't given just for the sake of giving gifts. There's a purpose behind the gifts. And they're, they're diverse gifts, they're amazing gifts, and, and they're purposeful. And you need to know that if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift. And, and you might know someone who has a, a number of them, and that's really cool, right? Like, why do I only have one gift? I, I doubt that anyone has just, one believer has just one gift. I think Christ gives several gifts to believers at times. But you have a gift, and you have also what we'll talk about next week. You have, there's spiritual gifts that Christ has given, and there are also natural gifts that Christ has given. And, and we'll talk about those as well next week. But I just want to challenge you. Do you know what your gift is? And if you do, are you using it? Because that's the point. I think in some ways we receive gifts every year, maybe at Christmas time or other times, and, and they're not gifts that we're really all that interested in, and then maybe we even repurpose them. The white, what is it, the, the white elephant gifts? Remember those? Some people have given me some really stupid stuff. The gift that Christ has given are of infinite value, and the employment of them builds up the church, and it'll bring you joy. And so I just want to challenge you, if you know what your gift is, use it. Use it. Use it.